MSW Media. So, Asha, what the heck is going on at the border with the state of Texas and federal officials? Eh, it's complicated. I'm Asha Rangappa. I teach national security law at Yale University. I'm a former FBI special agent, and I'm a legal contributor for ABC News. And I'm Renata Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst. And we're here to help you understand topics that can't be boiled down into a soundbite or tweet. Oh boy. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, just from reading the headlines, it sounds like uh, the state of Texas is kind of up in arms against the United States of America and the federal government. What a crazy situation. Yeah, Greg Abbott has gone completely cuckoo pants and is using... <laughs> Um, you know, the Texas National Guard, the Texas State Guard, which, by the way, I only recently learned that there are two different militias in Texas. Um, I'm not really one is the National mm. Guard, which can be federalized, and one is actually um, internal to Texas. But anyway, um, to basically uh, try to, I guess what they're claiming is enforce immigration law um, at the border and I think what's new is that what Governor Abbott has done is go beyond, you know, merely doing things within Texas, but actually going to the border and, um, you know, using these state forces to basically prevent migrants from crossing the Rio Grande um, and coming in to Texas, which obviously implicates uh, federal immigration law and federal law enforcement because it's thwarting the ability of federal law enforcement to uh, do their job there. So among other things, Abbott has placed, um, I think, buoys or some sort of barrier in the Rio Grande, which uh, I believe has, has caused some drownings of people uh, trying to cross um they also erected a wire he also erected a wire fence um which has thwarted federal law enforcement so they've been the federal law enforcement has been cutting it and there's a whole lawsuit about that um and then they've also the state of texas has has passed some laws um creating state authorities around immigration um and immigration has traditionally been um, a federal an issue, right? Like we can't have um, a patchwork of all different kinds of immigration laws uh, in the states. Um, that is something that, you know, squarely falls in uh, Congress's Article One authority. So that's what's going on. And it's what I think has been really interesting is that what Abbott has invoked uh, in response to the Biden administration and the Justice Department is um, a clause in the Constitution, Article 1, Section 10, which says, no state shall, without the consent of Congress, lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, enter into any agreement or compact with another state or with a foreign power, or engage in war, unless actually invaded, 
or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. And what Abbott is basically claiming is that the state of Texas is being invaded and that the federal government is not doing anything and therefore he is authorized as the governor of the state to take all of these measures. Yeah, not the sort of thing that would ordinarily stand, let's put it that way, but the United States Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit might feel otherwise, right? It's the same uh, court that has been very inhospitable um, to a lot of federal regulation and to, frankly, a lot of what the Biden administration has been doing. Yeah, so there's a... It sounds like there's three lawsuits that have been have come out of this. One has to do with the barriers that have been put into the river. Um, and that the federal government says violates, you know, this law about that only the federal government can do things in, I guess, international waters or something. Um, so that that case is there. Then there's the case where Abbott is trying to stop federal law enforcement from cutting the wire on his fence. Um, and then there's the federalism question of whether Texas can actually pass these laws that create its own immigration scheme, basically, in Texas. And all of these have had various um, outcomes. Um, some have actually been in the department and the Justice Department's favor, like the the Bowie's case. Um, they've told Abbott to remove them, but he hasn't. Um, and then some of the, I think the state versus federal issue is going up to the Supreme Court. So it'll, it will remain to be seen. So I don't know if the constitutional claim is actually being invoked in those legal cases, or if that's a, if that's a um, outward posturing, you know, kind of claiming this constitutional authority as um, sort of a political move. And that's what I think is interesting is how his interpretation of this as an invasion actually intersects with what's going on on Capitol Hill. That's right. I mean, it, first of all, I'll just say, Asha, I mean, it's an interesting claim in general. It really, uh, it doesn't comport, I think, with the data. I don't think immigration is particularly high right now compared to where it's been historically. So it's an, an interesting claim, but it really is part of, I would say, an election year narrative. Um, and, you know, we're seeing now in the House of Representatives, they're going to impeach the uh, Secretary uh, Home, of Homeland Security, Mayor. Um, I don't think it's going anywhere in the Senate. I actually would be surprised if there are even impeachment hearings um, in the United States Senate regarding that. But that's certainly there. And then there's a bipartisan uh, bill that's up. Uh, that's, you know, in the Senate, uh, in which both Republicans and Democrats are working together to, you know, uh, take additional action towards enforcement in the southern border. Uh, and it, and Trump is trying to get the Republicans to kill it. It's actually been interesting to see some of, Repu you know, the Republicans in the Senate pushing back and saying, hey, we were here to get things done in Washington. We're not going to let you derail our bill. I mean, it's very uh, interesting. And I do think it's so much of it is about um, you know, the election, uh, the presidential election this year. It's about the election. And I think it's also about the othering and the need to keep this as a political issue to mobilize people undermines the claim they're making. In other words, if this is an invasion, 
if this is something that, you know, it, that the state of Texas has to respond to immediately because they're being overrun. And by the way, I think the question of whether migrants crossing the border would count as an invasion, I, don't, I really don't think that's what the framers of the Constitution had in mind. Like, I think they m- imagined the state of Mexico sending armed troops across the border. That would be an invasion. Um, but in any case, this idea of some sort of imminent threat that needs to be responded to is undercut if you say, well, this can wait until January of next year um, to be solved when we have a new administration in. And we saw this play out, by the way, also back with the travel ban. When the Muslim travel ban was put in because, you know, there's terrorists coming from all these countries. But, you know, the the actual the the Trump administration was willing to push off um, you know, an actual adjudication on the merits for uh, several months. So it was sort of like, well, it's really not that much of an emergency if you're able to wait for there to be a ruling on it. So it's, you know, it, the, I think the unfortunate thing with both the travel ban and now what Abbott's doing is that it affects actual people. And in the case of Texas, people's lives and people are dying as a result of this. Yeah, particularly that they're putting up along the border. I think a private property, even something that a federal government might have authority to do because the borders uniquely control the federal government, not so much the state government. I really think what Abbott is doing, though, is he's he's taking a lesson that he learned from his um, busing of migrants across the United States and applying it here. I mean, there you have migrants who enter the state of Texas and essentially what this guy's doing is, in some instances, tricking these people into getting on buses with false promises and sending them to other states and just dropping them off with the idea that, like, hey, if I can, you know, it doesn't matter whether they're the, what I'm doing is legal. If I just take action and then beg for forgiveness later, it will draw attention to this issue. It's going to get me a lot of praise, uh, maybe on Fox News, a lot of support by his base that sort of thing. And there's really no downside for him. And so I think he did it there. It's worked very well for him. Now he's doing the same thing here by essentially saying, I'm going to take action. And it's a win-win for him. If the courts or the Biden administration or someone else steps in and stops him, then he can blame somebody else. Um, And if they let him do it even better, he could say he's taking action. And it's just essentially, he's he's not regarding the law. He's just trying to look and determine what's in his own political advantage. Yeah, I think that's true. I do think that there are some serious implications here, though. So, number one, um, I think it's alarming if he is refusing to comply with court decisions, ordering him to stand down. I think that is a very alarming development. Um, Another alarming development is that you have... Republican governors of, I think it's now 25 other states who have backed him and want to send their own National Guards down to help him. I mean, this is, um, you know, these are states basically acting in contravention of the federal government um, on a a federal issue. And so we're seeing in, in it's a different context, but a similar thing that Trump tried to set in motion on January 6th. It's a, it's a rebellion is what is it is. Um, and I think we need to also be alarmed at 
what's happening on the Hill, the impeachment proceeding, which even if it's a political stunt, you know, uh, it's using impeachment, which should be based on high crimes and misdemeanors, not just because you don't like the guy that you confirmed to be in the position. Um, it And there's no evidence that they have actually accused him of a high crime and misdemeanor. So they're kind of cheapening that constitutional guardrail that exists. And then lastly, Greg Sargent in the Washington Post had a really interesting take on this, which is by not taking legislative action and by blaming it on Biden um, and claiming that he is the one who has the power to solve this, they're really setting the stage for um, if Trump wins to come in with an iron fist and issue the executive orders that he has been promising with draconian immigration policies of deportation and camps or whatever he he has in mind. Yeah, look, I will share your concern about this sort of split uh, among the states and among state governments where it it seems, I mean, I don't even know if January 6th would be the analogy I'd use. I mean, to me, it's it's almost like the pre-Civil War era where- Pre-Civil yeah, War. Yeah, where you almost had on everything from tariffs to slavery- um, Southern states basically saying we're going to go our own way and we're going to enforce force laws the way we want to and we're going to not comply with uh, what the federal government uh, is trying to do. I mean, it's it's very concerning uh, and really I think is antithetical to the idea of a United States of America. So it's very concerning from that perspective. I, I think you know regarding immigration, it's an like I said, it's interesting and the data doesn't quite. Uh, match the feelings uh, that there are for the Republicans. And it really, to me, immigration is something that obviously is not only uniquely federal, but is something that can't be solved if even if there is a problem, you know, in a particular area, because, you know, because ultimately people are going to want to move and are going to want to travel and are going to want to immigrate. In fact, that's been a big part of the United States and what has made the United States great for so many years. And so you could set policy and, you know, but, you know, that's why we have elections is to set that policy. And it's, it's, you know, essentially almost a, a form of nullification uh, to say that uh, the election didn't matter and you can't, you know, the president can't set that policy and, and, you know, expecting him to solve the problem is absurd because realistically any issues that there are, with a border can't be solved by anybody. It's like trying to solve crime. Uh, there's always going to be crime yeah. and, but, that you can combat it, but um, you, you can't, uh, you know, no president can solve it uh, with the stroke with the pen. Yeah. And, you know, with these governors who, you know, claim they want to send their national guards down um, and even with the Texas national guard, you know, technically Biden can federalize the national guard. And they would have to answer to him. But you have to wonder, are we at a point where, you know, if he were to do that, would there be, you know, some sort of mutiny of, of the troops, you know, against? I mean, like, I just feel like it's crazy that we're in this time where we have to wonder whether these, you know, state National Guards would... Uh, follow the orders of the president of the United States, um, you know, if they were being given, if 
if they were put under his command and it contradicted what their governors were telling them. Yeah, I just find that incredibly scary. And well, I'm, I'm interested to see what you think about that. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, it is, it, it's part of, I'd say, a, a world in which we have, let's say, half the country demonizing the person who's the president of the United States, right? And basically trying to paint him as some sort of um, instrument of evil, although at the same time portraying him as someone who's asleep at the wheel and or un, unable to do his job. I don't know how evil you can be if all you're doing is, you know, not doing much of anything. But also, who also have, like, standing armies yeah right i i will i will i mean that's that's to me is like kind of the the crazy part yeah i agree with that i I would also just say that i mean to me it's really it really betrays things too when you have folks within the republican party basically saying we don't want to pass any legislation on this issue at all we don't want to try to solve this problem at all I mean, it almost, it's like betraying the fact that it's a stunt. I mean, it's an election year stunt more than anything else. And a provocation. I'll just add one more note here, because I I think I saw some of these comments on Twitter that said, well, this is no different than, you know, states um, having sanctuary cities. And it is very different, because the sanctuary cities principle is based on an idea of federalism where local law enforcement can't or ought not be commandeered to enforce federal law. And that actually has its uh, origins in a Supreme Court case, which basically called Prince versus United States, which said that, um, the, that the federal government couldn't commandeer state and local law enforcement to enforce gun laws, for example. Um, but, the refusal to the refusal to enforce or to help you know federal law enforcement is very different than taking over federal law enforcement and seeking to supplant it um and that's what's happening in texas it's a very different it's a very different legal issue and i think it, there has very different implications and ramifications yeah i i agree with you 1000% on that uh in fact Really, with the former, when you're talking about sanctuary cities, it's really about executing, you know, uh, uh, executing the the, the uh, discretion you have regarding what your priorities are in terms of law enforcement. Okay, there's all sorts of laws out there that you can enforce. You have certain resources, and a city or a state can make a decision. We want to prioritize enforcing law, you know, X, Y, and Z laws, and not assisting federal law enforcement with enforcing certain federal laws. Very different from saying we're going to take matters into our own hands and and uniquely, uh, you know, go into a uniquely a federal area, whether it's the, you know, interstate highway system, like we're going to we're going to, um, you know, try to, you know, inter- interfere with that in some way or in this case, the, the border and and um, immigration issues. Uh, and we're going to try to countervene uh, federal uh, enforcement there. Yeah. And as you said, the tell is that there is the option to pass a federal law that would take action in a way that Republicans and Democrats agree on, but there's a contingency that doesn't want to do it because they need the emergency to keep their political issues alive. It's like the Fox News caravans that always seem to show up <laughs> every two years, uh, right, right in around. a run up to an election, and then the caravans go away, and then they're back. Uh, right. They're back, right? Mm-hmm. 
So, Renato, uh, last week we saw some interesting lawyering by Alina Hava uh, and a three-minute testimony on the stand by Donald Trump in the E. Jean Carroll case, and then we had a verdict. So maybe we should talk about what all of that means. Well, as a starting point, I mean, we could talk a little bit about what happened in court. You know, one comment that I made a number of times on Twitter is just how obvious it was that Miss um, Haba had not tried a case before. You know, a lot of the basics um, were not there, like how to get in a piece of evidence and, you know, admit a, 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 you know, admit a document, you know, how to ask certain questions, how to handle objections. Like she just clearly was not prepared for the task. And that's saying, I'm saying something. I mean, there were college students that I would coach at mock trial who probably would have been more prepared than mm -hmm. her to handle that. So it's really um, a, a sounding. If she has any experience at a trial, I would be shocked um, given her performance. Um, and, you know, so I do think that was interesting. I, I think that I will say some of the commentary against her seemed a little... Um, a little much. I mean, some of it was kind of gendered and about her appearance or other things. I don't think any of that's necessary, but just clearly not up to the task as a lawyer, without a doubt. Um, but I, I and I think, you know, the testimony of Donald Trump was interesting. And one thing I will just say, because we've talked about this before with Judge Egeron in the New York case is control the courtroom, right? We had that whole episode, we we're talking about a circus. And you got to see with Judge Kaplan, who is very well known, very well respected judge, uh, federal judge in New York, he kept extraordinary control over that courtroom. He at one point threatened to throw Lena Hava in a lockup. He would, you know, put a very tight rein on the questions she asked. He would force her to preview questions in advance, which people, uh, a lot of people on Twitter were like, this is shocking. It's like, nope, that that does happen. Uh, if, if you've tried cases before, judges sometimes do that. But he had extraordinary control. And as you just said a moment ago, Asha, the, the examination of Donald Trump only lasted a few minutes. And the reason it did was because the judge very carefully circumscribed what he could say and put Hava in a box. So she basically only could ask a very limited set of questions that were relevant in a, in a, in a, in a trial that was all about the damages um, that were caused by Trump's uh, defamation of E. Jean Carroll. I don't even think one of the questions was very relevant because one of the questions she asked was, do you stand by your deposition testimony? And he said, yes. It is relevant because it goes to the damages. He's still, he's reaffirming his falsehood, even on the witness stand. So I think he allowed that because it's almost like it goes to putative Got damages. Got it. Because I thought it was really allowing him to indirectly stand by his claim that she was lying, which he had said is mm -hmm. not allowed in. But I see what you're saying. It's it's also affirming that he has no remorse. Yeah, it goes both ways. You need to, to, to deter him. So I think that's why the judge let it. He was actually giving her a bit of a leash. Like, you know, it's it's a weird situation. So just, I mean, courts often, judges have to deal with lawyers who don't know what they're doing. Sometimes it's even worse. There's like a pro se person who can't afford a lawyer or doesn't want a lawyer because they're crazy in some way. And the judge tries to kind of help them through the process. Here, I think the judge was like, it was, you know, he, he gave her a little bit of rope. He gave her all the rope he could give her. And I think he thought that asking that question was probably going to hurt Trump. And it did. 
I mean, I don't think it helped. Um, clearly, the jury verdict was, I think, very serious. And it's one that will hold up an appeal. Because if they awarded, you know, $11 billion, you know, or some some absurd amount, um, uh, an appellate court's going to say, okay, you know, this is not a $2 billion punitive. A $2, million, $2 billion punitive damage award is not going to not going to work. But this was, I thought, a, a, a size of award that's going to hold up an appeal. Yeah. Well, I do think we need to acknowledge that Trump was was not only hoping to get talking points out for the jury. He wanted to get them out into the court of public opinion. So, you know, when he went past the yes or no that Alina Haba had asked him, um, and tried to pontificate, the, as you said, the judge shut him down and had it struck from the record. But I have to tell you, Renato, when I was on ABC later, you know, the anchors were literally repeating verbatim exactly what he said that had been struck. So even though those were technically struck as a legal matter and should not have been considered in terms of uh, assessing the damages, obviously they've made it out into the world. Now, the judge was successful in that there wasn't that much. But my point is Trump understands that. Like he knows if he goes cuckoo pants on the witness stand, that even if it's struck in court, it's going to be repeated ad nauseum in in the media and social media and amplified. Uh, and he still achieves, I think, a certain victory in that regard. I agree completely. This is what we talked about. You and I have talked about this last yeah. couple of episodes, the circus, where he knows that what's much more, it's much more interesting from, from a media's perspective to have a spectacle and they have Trump saying crazy things versus, you know, okay, there's this award because he turned, you know, he um, has turned this woman's life upside down and harmed her grievously. Uh, that's not as interesting of a story. It's much more interesting to write about his antics and people, even who dislike him, want to want to read about the antics. But I, and I will just say more broadly, say this just a, from a trial lawyer's perspective, that we like to pretend in the law that judges and juries have magic minds. Okay, the judges hear things that they know are not um, uh, relevant, and they can magically disregard those things. And separately, the juries will know to disregard things that are stricken or they'll, they'll obey these, you know, special instructions that you should only consider this evidence as to one defendant, not another. But the reality of the fact is that people hear what they hear. There have been studies that show that when judges learn facts that they know are irrelevant, they still um, take them into account. And I think um, there is a danger um, about, uh, you know, a, a, you know, in terms of letting uh, someone get away with saying things. The, the issue is, and I hope this informs future discussions that we're having when we talk about, for example, you know, in what happens in the January 6th case with Jack Smith. If you remember you, when there was a motion, you and I discussed, like, how can his defense attorneys get stuff in? And how can they get, the, you know, that Jack Smith is trying to keep out? And there's an example. Even when you have a judge like yeah. Judge Kaplan, he he was still, uh, you know, who's so strong, Trump was still able to get some things in. I mean, I suppose he could have said Trump can't testify at all if, you know, there was nothing relevant or if he if Alina Haba was not willing to agree to his parameters. But again, it that is that towing the line with Trump, the special defendant in that you know, enforcing certain types of parameters 
then feeds into his nar- narrative that he's being railroaded or muzzled, etc. So you almost have to let him have more leeway and and get, you know what I mean? Like let let him get some of that out a little bit just because then he can't claim that he had no opportunity, even though they did anyway. So Yeah, I think that the judge was, you know, he's very experienced. He was thinking about how the record would read on appeal. And he, he didn't, it was just simpler for him to give her a short leash um, than for him to not let him testify at all. I think that was the better move. And yeah. look, no matter what he did, Alina Hava was going to go out there and complain about it. In fact, she was complaining to the press that he wasn't able to explain his innocence and, you know, in her words in front of the jury, which had nothing to do with this trial. This is a trial about the amount of damages, right? And nothing to do with that. But, um, you know, nonetheless, she's going to complain. I don't know if she doesn't understand that or doesn't want to understand that. But, you know, the reality is, is that the, the judge was going to get criticized no matter what. One thing I thought was, was sad um, and telling is that the judge went to great lengths to not only let the jury be anonymous, but actually t- instructed the jury, I recommend that you do not sh- tell anyone that yeah. you're on this jury. And it really shows that the judge per- perhaps himself has been subjected to threats or intimidation and really is concerned about what would happen to the jury. Yeah, that was a very, very shocking part of of that trial. And I think it gets to some of the issues that we discussed in in the first block um uh in terms of the undermining of our rule of law so whether or not alina haba understood what was happening the jury understood what was happening so in trump's first defamation trial the jury had awarded him five million dollars awarded sorry ejin curl five million dollars and in this one they clearly bought uh Carol's lawyer's message that they needed to send Trump a message uh, that he was not going to stop until they made it hurt in his pocketbook. And they awarded him $83.3 million, which included punitive damages. Um, So what do you, what do you make of that amount? And is that the kind of thing that an appeals court is going to uphold? I do think they're going to uphold that, given the uh, money that Trump has. I mean, there was a lot of evidence introduced at the trial about how I mean, he claims he has all this money. Um, you know, I think Carol already won $5 million in the prior trial, so it's a total, I think, of $88 million. But I think that, in this, given how rich Trump is that and his behavior after the, the first trial, I think it is, it's going to hold up. Um, and I also think it's no, worth noting that for now, at least as far as I could tell, it has deterred him. I don't think he said anything more about E.G. Yeah. Carroll uh, since this trial. It's interesting, right? Because so the pocketbook did matter for him. was enough, um, which I actually think might might help. Uh, uh, you know, it's something I expect uh, that Carroll's lawyers are going to point to an appeal. And, and, you know, the I think uh, one question that I've been asked a lot, I don't have a perfect answer for it. It's actually quite complicated, maybe even too complicated for this podcast is what, you know, when is Carol going to expect to get money and how, what is that process going to look like? You know, I will say I'm, I'm somebody who's prosecuted and defended real estate developers. They usually are not liquid. Uh, they usually have lots of loans. They're usually highly leveraged. I don't know 
if that's the case for Trump. In other words, I, if he I has think it's a safe bet. Million dollars. <laughs> I think it's a safe bet. Yeah, safe bet. He's very leveraged. So that's an issue for a lot of real estate developers. This would be paralyzing. Um, and certainly that AG's, New York AG case would be paralyzing. But, you know, another issue that I've dealt with before, at least in other states, is having to post a like a surety bond on appeal, you know, if you are appealing um, a judgment so that the money is there and isn't being. So how much? How much purposes. would he have to post on a. Yeah, it depends on what a third party is willing to take in terms of him holding in order to to post the bond. I mean, usually what it is, is there's some institution that will post a a bond for the full amount in exchange for some amount of cash that they hold of yours. And but I don't know in this case what that's going to look like. And I'm not I'm licensed to California and Illinois, not in New York, so I don't know what the process and procedure is in New York, but I wouldn't be surprised. I'd be getting a lot of inquiries from journalists about this, which I've not responded to. And that's to keep him from just basically, you know, transferring the money, spending it, getting rid of it. um, And then claiming by the end of the appeal that he just doesn't have the money, which I mean, I think it would be very hard for him to do in this case. And, but it's hard for him to do. I will say it's a common issue in the law. A common issue in the law is you get a judgment And the person has an incentive to spend all the money before the judgment. They have an incentive to move the money. Right. And there's actual, there's lots and lots of lawyers out there who do collections matters where literally, and, and on big levels, like you, you have a $10 million judgment against this legal entity. And then the entity says they have no cash and you've got to go out there and try to find it. So say this goes up to appeal. Um, he loses you know, this is a matter of state law. It's only going to go so far. At some point, it's going to be a final judgment. And then he refuses to pay. So presumably now there's this surety bond that you said. Does that then, at least that portion, go to her? And then what's the enforcement mechanism to recover the rest? In other words, we're dealing in a situation, Renato, where we have people, including Trump, who will refuse to comply with a court judgment that they don't agree with. So I'm just wondering, you know, unlike in a criminal case where somebody, you know, is put in jail, um, what's what's the recourse here? A lot of times what happens is there's a lien that is end, ends up being placed, that judgment that's being placed. So that ultimately that judgment can be fulfilled if there's something that you can attach it to. Um you can attach that judgment to in order to get paid. But it is definitely, like I said, it's a complicated area of law. Um, I usually farm that out to other lawyers to deal with. I'll get the judgment and then that's somebody else's problem. But it is, it's a significant issue. And it's one reason why, you know, um, when you hear about an award or a, or whatever, why sometimes people settle for pennies in the dollar. In other words, the reason why you'll get let's say a dominion will settle for a certain amount of money is because trying to get a, they get a judgment having to deal with an appeal and deal with collections. Even if you have a rich person on the other side or rich company, this side could be challenging and costly. And so they um, would rather just have a sure agreement about that. And in fact, it's not uncommon if this was not Donald Trump, what would happen in an ordinary case is his team, and Carol Seam would talk and they'd reach an agreement on an amount in which they forego their appeal. They forego any sort of collections efforts. 
and say, in exchange for getting the cash now, um, here, you know, you're going to, there, she's going to take some sort of haircut. Um, she's going to take a portion of that. And that seems weird, but it's like these people who win the lottery and they take the lump sum payout instead of the payout over 30 years. And it, and it's smaller, uh, than the total lottery payout, but you get the money now and you know what you're getting. Can he declare bankruptcy? Usually, general rule, I'm not a bankruptcy lawyer, but the general rule is you can't discharge um, these court judgments uh, in bankruptcy. That was my understanding. Yeah. yeah. But I usually uh, consult with my bankruptcy partners for that. So we'll, we're confident that she, she'll see this money at some point. She'll see some percentage of it at the very least. She's going to see a lot of money at some point in time. And Trump's problems are going to grow. I mean, one thing that's under-considered here I think by a lot of folks, partly because we don't know enough of the facts, Asha, is the impact monetarily on all of this on the Trump empire. In other words, uh. Carol, I mean, business empire, not not actual empire, but you've got the E. Jean Carroll verdict. You've got this New York AG action, which could have very serious consequences above the hundreds of millions that the state AG is seeking, because I think she's seeking to dissolve certain entities, right, and have receiverships and all sorts of things. So what impact is that going to have on the Trump um, uh, real estate uh, empire and so on? I don't know, but it, it could be very, very substantial. It could be that, you know, he's actually, you know, far less liquid, far less wealthy than he's letting the world uh, believe. We shall see. So before we go, Renato, you are traveling. You are in sunny climes. Yes, I'm pretty clearly in a hotel room. That's why the audio is a little different than usual. Don't have my setup. I, there's been two different conferences down here in Florida. So uh, definitely a nicer place to be than Chicago right now. Um, and I did. Where in Florida life. are you? I'm currently in Fort Lauderdale. I was in Naples for another conference. So rented a car and drove across the state. So beautiful place to be. Um, but definitely, uh, um, you know, when you're going to a conference, it's not, it's, it's more, it's business, right? Not pleasure, but my wife's here enjoying it a little bit. I'll be in Miami in two weeks and then, uh, in Orlando in four weeks. Nice. Now, who takes care of Pancake? Right now, I've been told by my mother-in-law who's taking care of Henry that he's very upset. He's watching out every day by the window to oh, see Oh, really? I know. Yeah, it's so sad. Yeah. My, my daughter takes care of Pancake mm-hmm. while I'm gone. Um, so she comes in the morning and then after school and hangs out. But yeah, I think um, he certainly feels abandoned when I leave. But, you know, he's a cat. He'll get over it. Um, <laughs> and then I come back and then he's fine. Uh, but yeah, so I'll be in Miami for a conference also. Uh, for the National Constitution Center. And then the Orlando trip is um, a friend of mine, a college friend who's celebrating his 50th birthday at Epcot Center. Oh, that's super fun. That's super fun. This was not as fun. I did get to hear Carl Rove speak, um, uh, <laughs> which was uh, entertaining. I uh, tried to convince everyone, don't worry. Uh, what Trump's doing is not that crazy because we've had even worse things happen in the United States. And it's like, yeah, that was like 150 years ago, man. Uh, this is a very different situation. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, not nearly as much fun. 
MSW Media. Hi, I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of the Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay? Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.